Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe. Subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. If you have subscribed, get a friend, get family. We need that support. Much gratitude. Very much appreciate it. This episode features Ricardo, better known as Ricky Williams, a founding member and drummer, singer, and composer for the 1970s and 1980s funk, dance, and R&B band Mass Production. Based in Norfolk, Virginia, together with his brother Tyrone Williams, close friend LaCoy Bryant, female vocalist Agnes Kelly, and six other band members, Mass Production released eight albums and 11 singles on the Cotillion label between 1976 and 1983. Their best known and noteworthy songs included Welcome to Our World, I Believe in Music, Just Want to Make a Dream Come True, Watch Me Do It, Sky High, Groove Me, Can You See I'm Fired Up, Eyeballing, Forever, Nature Lover, Shantae, Turn Up the Music, Bop, Saucy, Inner City, and Rock. However, the track they are most famous for is their 1979 smash hit, Firecracker. Although the large ensemble, to a large extent, lurked within the shadow of label mate Funk Giant Slave, and was sometimes confused with similar bands like Brass Construction, mass production definitely had its own unique thing as well. Its propulsive rhythms that Ricky Williams drove were boosted by some powerful guitar and bass playing, punctuated and further propelled by robust horns and raised to a whole nother level with lush vocals and rich harmonies. Their influences abound from Norman Whitfield and the Temptations to Earth, Wind and Fire to Bohannon to the Barquets, and yes, even to Slave and Brass Construction, and later on, even Prince. It is fantastic news that the group has been ramping up again and plans to release new music and take it to the stage. Here, Williams leaves no mass production stone unturned, including the influence of marching bands on his approach and style, how he named the band, how he wrote classics like Firecracker, his reluctance to be a lead singer on songs like Firecracker, the band rising to prominence and meeting other famous musicians, how his younger brother Sam Williams took over drumming duties after Ricky took more than a year to recover from a car accident in the early 1980s, how the record industry ultimately chewed up and spat out the band, what happened subsequently, and how he and several original members are primed and pumped to be turning up the music once again. Special thanks to Larry Rachelson. He's been working with and handling some affairs for mass production, and he was very helpful in getting his interview scheduled. You'll find that Williams exudes likability, and our conversation really flowed. Hope you enjoy it and find mass production's story to be as compelling as I did. It is so exciting to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, a founding member of the massive 1970s and 1980s funk dance and R&B band Mass Production. I'm talking about singer, drummer, and composer, Ricky Williams. Ricky, how are you today? Doing <laughs> fine, man, how about you? I'm doing well, thank you, so glad to have you. 
I'm happy to be here, really. And uh, this is, you know, this is a great pleasure doing something like that, especially with connecting with somebody and, you know, and, uh, and what even we had in previous conversation, you seem to be somebody that's well, you know, articulating this matter. So, hey, this is great. Well, I've been a fan going way back. You know, I mean, you guys were uh, one of the uh, main staples at the uh, house parties and dances and clubs back in uh, my high school days and into college. So uh, I was DJ back then and, and spun many of those records. So much respect. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. That's all good. <laughs> it's really good. Did you even know we was in that deep, you know, being a musician, you always love to know with somebody, you know, showing some kind of, you know, notification and the fact that they like you and they appreciate you. So, hey, just to hear this in itself is uh, still, even today, man, it's, it's a real great, you know, it, 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 it's a great happy moment. So I appreciate it. Well, much deserved and very glad that you're still with us and still looking uh, young and vital. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, like Kellogg cornflakes, you know, me and Tony, <laughs> real good. <laughs> Excellent. Where, where, where are you coming to us from today, Ricky? Right now, I'm coming to you today from Hackensack, New Jersey, up here in uh, northern New Jersey, right outside of New York. Okay. And um, that's where me, me and most of the guys at right now. Some of us, you know, we are uh, here and there, but we come from New Jersey. All right. Sticking close to home. Yes. Yes. And uh, also, you know, you know, our roots are from Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, which I just... I just got back from there Saturday. You know, I got back in town, went down there, tried to stay connected, uh, especially that's our base. It's still, I still consider our base our home. And here is just more or less like, this is like the business home, but down there is the home home, you know, where our heart and family is, so. I got you. All right. All right, well, that's a good uh, entrance to how I want to get rolling, going a little bit back, testing your uh, memories and your your brain cells a little bit to go all the way back and tell me about you know where you grew up how you first got into music and you and your the story you know about you and your your brothers the williams brothers uh wow the, the, it was i well i can note that the williams brothers basically when we started that out with this group started this all off it was Tyrone, myself, and Liko, which we basically, Liko Bryant, which we basically considered as a brother too, because we were all 12 years old when we started this thing, you know? We both ventured into it, you know, like a lot of groups, we were 12 years old playing in go-go and strip clubs, you know, that's what, you know, no, parents didn't know, but hey, a gig's a gig, you know? And um, that's how we got, that's how the three of us got started going in, and, and now, and from there, even though we were playing together, most of our roots were really, really baked in school. We were in school baths, and which we were really, everything we did centered around that. And so Tyrone and I, that's where all the group came from, really. Tyrone, Lico, and I, that's like, picked everybody, got together, and our hearts and our, and our drive came from really being in a school band. And so who's who's the oldest and who's the baby and all that kind of stuff? Tyrone, I guess, will be considered the, the, the baby. But you know, it's a strange thing. Tyrone is really considered the baby, but he's the master, master brain. He's the one that's sort of like, 
God us all. We like little ducklings. When Tyrone goes, he goes. But he's the baby, you know. And uh, because that was all uh, kind of like really in reference to where the whole thing of mass production came. Every book we were so com we were compartmentalized and contained. Yet everybody had a particular thing that they did. And Tyrone thing was more or less like he was the guy that kept us all together to go go for it. But then again, on that, he was the baby until Sam came in, and which is my younger brother. Uh, he turned into the baby. But up until he had came in, you know, came into the group, Tyrone was really the baby in, of the band. And what was it like growing up in your house? You know, where was there music in the family, or you know, what inspired you guys to move in that direction? Well, yeah. It really was. Uh, uh, Tyrone and I, we were made, <laughs> I said, we can joke about this now, now, but we were made to take piano lessons at two years old because my older sister was a classical piano player. And my he was a uh, he was a drummer in, in, in the high school band, which all of us sort of like did through. And uh, from there, uh, Tyrone and myself, even though my, my sister was a classical piano player, my brother was the one that we really wanted. We loved that high school band stuff so much that he's the one that we really kind of like went behind. And from there, he, he sort of like brought everything in. Our house, man, was really crazy simply because of the fact I was just telling someone the other day is that he had started the whole thing of that. He had half a marching band in my mother's living room rehearsing. And from that, my brother and I, when we used to rehearse, for mass production and the groups in front of we were rehearsing this little maybe uh 20 by 20 living room the whole band playing a two-hour rehearsal with the whole the whole neighborhood would come out and party with us so everybody knew we were rehearsing because so we rehearsed that in the living room my mother's living room and boom you know that was that was really something you know for you to bring that memory up because that was a great memory that's how everybody in norfolk became a part of us because they were there when we were rehearsing, they were there when we were playing. It was just, it was just a great thing. Well, it sounds like great times, Ricky. Um, it was. And how did you gravitate toward the drums? From that day with my brother, when, when he had brought those uh, drums home, like um, he had brought the drums home, and with, with the marching band, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm being truthful about it. There was a marching band in our living room. It was the craziest thing when I walked in and I saw those drums and one day he went somewhere and Tyrone, we did, my brother doesn't even know this until the day, my older brother. I stole his drum and he took the horn and we went outside, he broke the horn by the way. <laughs> but I hit that drum and from that moment on, I was like, it was like, it was the greatest thing in the world. You know, you know drums were just like, there was no other instrument but drums. And that, you know, it was just, it was just a nice thing for me. Uh, it sort of like became my uh, mantra. Nobody saw Ricky without a pair of drumsticks. There were all drumsticks in my life. And, and that became, like I said, a mantra for me. Were you one of those guys that would walk around with them and just beat on whatever you could all the time? Everything. Yeah. Uh, about maybe three weeks ago, I was in the post office sending out a letter and I was just in there just beating. And the, and the postal office, she said, you must be a drummer. I said, why do you say that? Because you are beating so well to the beat of that music and you just into it. I said, wow, okay. I'm sorry about that. It was just a bad habit of mine. I've been doing it all my life. And yeah, I was. 
everything. Everything became a drum. A pot, a pan, a hand, everything was a drum. Percussion instrument, it was just my world. The rhythm of life. The rhythm of life. The rhythm of life and love, yes sir. <laughs> so when did you guys, um, you talked about playing at 12. When did you first kind of form, you know, what you might call serious group prior to mass production? And uh, who were your early influences? Our earliest, well, you know, the thing about it, when we first started, we seriously got a group together. It was, uh, it was like I said, Lee Coy, Tyrone, and myself. And um, then we picked up a couple of guys called the Four Brothers. They became, you know, instrumental and in also in the group. Uh, where at that time, it was really the Delphonics because it was the second group time. It was, you know, the same group of the Delphonics and the stylistics and all of that. But we, um, before we had gotten to that stage, when we were just playing because we just wanted to play, James Brown was the biggest, you know, and James Brown's anything from Stax Records. You know, Stax Records was just everything that came out of there. We considered to be the, you know, the, the jamminess thing on the planet. So, uh, that right there was a major influence uh, in things. Matter of fact, when we were little kids, I was just telling my wife not too long ago the story that when my grandmother had first brought this high five, that's what they were calling, you know, you know, in those days, they were high fives. And she brought this high five. And we, um, we would play uh, Arthur Connolly and Joe Tex like crazy. And she would always scream, you're going to tear my speakers up. You're going to tear my, but we couldn't help it. We were just, it was just that stuff out of stacks, man. Was just so well, you know. It was, it was just, it was just jamming. It was groovy. So those were my our major influence. Basically, I'd probably say Don and Doug Dunn and Steve Cooper. These guys, they were just great. How they put that stuff together, you know, they really were. So, what were some of your uh, earlier er, earlier band names and and groups that you were part of before mass production? Band names. Um, when we started with the singing group, we were called the Sonifics because, like I said, that was the you know at the, the, we know we were the moments, the the movements. Idolizing ourselves after the moments, we were the movements. Recent and the band band behind it. We were uh, later we became the Sonifics, just the band. And from that, from one evening, evening on, we became um, mass, mass production. Out of one evening of uh, a little, I don't know if I can say it, one, after one evening of we things turned around. And no longer did we want to play, you know, we wanted to, we didn't want to be the behind the, guy, behind the scene guys anymore. We want to be up front because at that point, uh, at that time, you know, the Beatles had changed a lot of uh, things because the Beatles now, they were the band singing. And now the Beatles are, are you know, the band singing. And now you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, that's the band singing. So, hey, now we want to be the band singing. So that's how we became mass production, like, like from uh, the Solnifics, from the movements to Solnifics to mass production. Was there much uh, debate over the what the name would be? It, it really wasn't. After I explained to the guys, 
you know, it, it, you know, you want to hear that story or uh, uh, the whole mass production thing I can do, but really it was once I told them and the reason behind us being called mass production, it just came. The only question came after that was, when is the next gig? <laughs> you know, that's all the guys were concerned about. Hey, good, let's move on finding a gig, you know, and, and that was it. But uh, the story was that uh, I was I was looking at a, a, a black enterprise machine, a black enterprise zine, and um, there was an executive up there and he was talking to me, he was an executive at, I believe Ford, chief operating officer. And I read the article and he was talking about how prolific and how important mass production is in order to, to, the, uh, to the operation of the company. And I just got like, wow, you know, mass production. And like this from, from one thing to one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And, that, and after all of this has been assembled together, then you have the final product. And when I read it, the whole, it just became, you know, to me, just clear, like an epiphany. Oh, wow, that's who we are, mass production. And, and once I explained it to the guy, I just said, okay. No, it really was no debate at all. <laughs> it would just, everybody went right along with it. How many members did you have at that point? Because, you know, when I came to the group, uh, I figured that part of the reason it had that name was because it was a big group. Uh, it was, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest with you, with the size that we were always large, larger than even before we had really gotten signed, simply because of the fact that we were a marching band group. In other words, the foundation of the group was always Tyrone, Lecoy, and myself. But there were a lot of people that were like in, in, in the marching bands that was around us, these guys, if they wanted to play, we would come on and play. If you wanted to play, come on and play. And the next thing you know, there were probably at one time 15, maybe 20 people on stage, you know, because of the fact that we were a marching band group and everybody that was in the marching band with us, guys wanted to play. And Cat wanted to play. If he came to rehearsal and he learned the part, next gig you know he was uh he was on he was on stage the, re the way that it ended up being narrowed down to to the ones that we had was that we started to do like maybe we were doing like you know five or ten hour gigs and you only getting like 75 dollars that were really that's the process of elimination that we did out the week <laughs> you know and uh, from that point you know hey that's how it became like the mass production that it was, you know. Yeah, well, it's funny because the name you got from a business idea, and then you had to get down to business on economics with the group. So, yeah, and uh, when you found like, oh, you can only $75 can only go so far, you know. But the thing about it, nobody really even cared about the cash, we just wanted the gig, you know. The gig was the was the whole idea behind it. It wasn't even a matter of somebody. Yes, there was one time I think we did a gig for $10. I think we got like $80 for 10 hours. We got $80 for it. But you know what? We would get that was the thing. And as long as we were playing, we were all right. So Ricky, when did you guys, uh, you guys got signed in like 75 or something like that? How, how long were you out there as mass production before you got signed? 
and how did you get your deal? Uh, we were out as a group. Most of us, like as you know, the marching band. I, I keep going back to that because that was a strong influence on us. Um, we were also in uh, students of North State University, and being in the band at that, we were kind of like their school house band. We were in the marching band, which made us now when they had student union had gigs, uh, uh, um, during the um, during the school year, we always played at every function that they had. So we, it was um, Mr. Jarvis, Mr. Jarvis, Dean of Academic Affairs. He had told someone about us and, and, and he had really written a letter about us because, the, you know, like I said, we didn't even know it, that he had felt this way about us. So he had written to someone about us and they came down from New York to check us out. And uh, from that point on, I think we only, it was about three months later, three months later that uh, that Two Pepper had wanted to pack us up and bring us on up to New York after that, because it really moved rather, rather quickly. I mean, to the point where it even like threw some people off how fast things moved. So what was the material? Did you have some original songs when you first got signed? We had some original songs. I don't even think about one of them really went on, ended up being on any of our, our albums. So we did have some original songs because of the fact of that, you know, I mean, anybody, nobody's going to blindly sign you. So the thing of it is, is that uh, they came in, took us up to a studio in Richmond and we recorded a couple of tracks. And then that's when the whole process really started. We had about four originals, I believe. Like I said, was none of them, maybe one, I think it was Galaxy that maybe, uh, or just a song, it may have been two, they ended up on the album, but those were the only originals one from the demo, the demo presentation that we gave in order for it to uh, uh, end up being signed because it wasn't a thing with, with them when we were signed, it wasn't just uh, idea of us presenting out a demo. They wanted to see how we reacted and how we handled ourselves in the recording in the studio process, which we have been doing. Like I said, my, my brother Enrico and I, we, we recorded our first record when we were 10 years old mm -hmm. on the Frankie label, which was also the uh, Gary West Barnes uh, uh, a label. And that's who, that was our first record contract, really. And from there, we went on to them. So we had already had a little bit of experience and all and just the processing and the uh, the logistics and how to handle a recording session. So you guys signed to Cantillion, um, and or Cantillion, and I only became aware of that label really through you guys and through Slave, which I think you guys signed probably before they did, right? We we did, and we didn't know much about Cantillion either. And and I mean, was years later that we found that Cantillion was. Atlantic's old jazz label. The, the, the label had been active earlier, but it was just a jazz music label. They revived it with Henry Allen. And uh, that's when they signed us. I believe also Clear, the group Clear may have also been signed under the, uh, the continue label too. And, um, but they had those three acts. Uh, I don't know about, I'm trying to think it was, 
sister, sister Sledge under that label? They weren't under that label, right? But they were also there. And um, they, it was like I said, it was their first jazz label that I guess they wanted to revive it. And, and you know, how labels like to subsidize, you know, Atlantic and then Echo and all of these things, because we were really under the WEA umbrella. So for some reason, you know, it's like, hey, let's pull another label on. And that's how we ended up continuing. Now, when you first uh, formed, you had, what, like nine guys and one female singer, right? That was the makeup of the band. That, that is really the hard debate of mass production when, when we really became the structured group. The guys that we have, right? you're right, nine guys and one female, Agnes. And um, was there sort of a conscious thought process where you thought we want to have this female vocal to help offset the guys? No. <laughs> we were still, when we had formed the group, it was, it was really uh, just the nine guys, but something strange happened. People were really getting into Shaka Khan and Patti LaBelle at the time, because we were doing local gigs. Like I was saying, we were doing anything North State wanted us to do. And they were really into Shaka Khan and um, uh, uh, like Patti LaBelle. Larry, which was our lead singer, he can handle that. So we got, and that's how she became a, a really a member of the group from that point on to fill that particular hole that we didn't have. And that's how she became the one female. Okay. So let's talk about some of those records, Ricky. The first one was Welcome to Our World in 76, which was a great title, I think. I mean, it was welcoming everybody to that mass production world. And right. you had uh, led off with Welcome to Our World, the title track, which was um, some of a hit. Got to number 32 on the R&B chart, number five on the dance chart. How did you guys feel about how that album came out and getting that kind of recognition? We felt absolutely great. I mean, you mentioned it. I actually, to, to this day, remember being in the studio recording that song. I really do. And because uh, we, were, we were having so much fun doing it. Uh, we, I mean, it was, you know, anytime, I, like I said, you, you, you do something and, and you get a, a positive response from it, it, it was just nice. It was wonderful. We thought we thought we were, uh, you know, doing something that we really felt that, you know, we were, we were offering to someone and they were appreciated and they were showing appreciation back by the fact that, hey, it ended up on the road doing gigs. So, you know, always, always we'll come back to that. So it was pretty good. What was your guys' process like when you're in the studio? Who kind of like directed what and how did you come up with arrangements and decide who would solo when and all that kind of stuff? Um, uh, a lot of that, like I said, I, I, I was doing a, a lot of writing. And so the thing of it is a lot of the logistics of how we were going to go about doing it was uh, Tyrone, uh, Gregory, and uh, Otis were uh, more like, you know, sort of the ones that were uh, uh, put their heads together who was going to do what and how they were going to do it. Uh, Otis was ready. Otis and Larry was more or less like the, um, they would work on the backgrounds, uh, getting all of that prepared. Uh, while Tyrone would more or less be the rhythm section coordinator. He was there for the rhythm section, getting that right. Because that's how we would do things. We would like work 
we will put maybe about four or five hours into working on just the rhythm section. And then we'll put another four or five hours just working on the vocals. And then somewhere along during the, during the week, as we would get together, we would just, you know, marry those two things and then work it out like that. And that's how basically we did it. But it was, it was more or less everything, everything. When we went into the studio, it, there was no, um, who's going to do what, when you're going to do it, or how you want to do it. We got that all prepared back in rehearsal. When we were doing the rehearsal, everything was already mapped out. Only thing we really had to do was just go in the studio and do it. And Ed Ellerby is credited as producer. Um, who, who was he? Oh, wow, Scott, that's a great question. You know, um, one that I really don't know how to answer because uh, of the fact of that, you know, Ed, he, he brought us into the game and we appreciate him bringing us into the game. But um, he was our producer and I don't know how much, you know, <laughs> you want me to speak on that, but the thing of it is, is that we were, like I said, we appreciate him bringing us into the game. So I would just leave that at you. <laughs> well, you know what, on these shows, there's been a lot of groups that have producers that get credited, but you know they were important in the band getting where it got to, but did not necessarily hands-on produce the group. Yeah, well, you know, we all know what a producer, you know, is or what a producer should be doing, you know, and and it's and it's in my experience that a producer is the person that basically formulates it. He is the director, you know, if it was a film, like I said, a director in all of this. Uh, but for us, we we, it, we found out that a lot of it was on us, and and more there was more on us. There was more on us that should have been on us because of the fact of that we were walking really into a game that we really didn't know. You know, we really didn't know this game as well. Like right now, you know how the saying goes: if I had you know the knowledge now, but we were walking into a game inside of a game working inside of the game that we really didn't know the rules and come to find out really years later that nobody knew the rules and and when you're in a situation like that it's like well you start walking and doing things you got no business doing because you know nobody knew the rules so um hey i just said yeah a, a producer on that particular set, uh, situation was title only that's what you credit only on the album. That was it. Uh, we had to so we through this whole thing ourselves. Yeah. Well, I know as time went on, you guys started getting more uh, direct production credit on the records. Um, you know, I went back and re-listened to all these albums to talk to you today. So I wanted it to all be fresh in my mind. And on the first record, and in some some of the ones after that, I hear some Hamilton Bohannon influence and in some of the rhythm and playing. Is that something that was there or you feel is there? Or was that one? You mentioned some other people like James Brown, but was that also an influence? Oh, you're talking about Bohannon? Is that, yeah. Oh, well, you know, I could go and, and you brought up another name that is, you know, sometimes we will miss, but Bohannon was, uh, was yes. We love Bohannon, and and uh, that that might as well could have been because of the fact of that these uh, 
these guys, like for him, for instance, his jam, I was just listening to him the other day and the groove was just thumping. So yes, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't influencing in, 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 uh, uh, some of the things we're doing because of the fact that we loved his music too. And he, um, uh, Jimmy Castor also, you know, it, it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, before I move past this one, I just want to mention to so the viewers, you know, some other great tracks on this record. I like to dance, great guitar, uh, rhythm and lead on that one. Um, Fun in the Sun was a little jazzy type of cut. Yeah. Um, and Wine Flow Disco, interesting on that one is that really it's more funk than disco, but you got disco on the title. Yeah, you know. That one, that the title of that was a joke. <laughs> the title of because basically we were supposed to be doing a promo, and uh, our manager producer suggested that we do do it as a disco. That's how we were going to get people out. So we we came up with this thing wine flow, and it just rhymed with disco, and we just joked about it and joked about it. And uh, next thing you know, it's on the album wine <laughs> disco. But we didn't think much about it, but that's how that title ended, ended up on there. And you know, you think about the things now. Maybe we should have just left the disco off, <laughs> rewind flow. But that's how the disco got caught up in there, basically being a joke. <laughs> it's like one of those like working titles you put on something, and then you think you're gonna. Absolutely, absolutely, and and, and it never changes. And when you look up there on the album, and there it is, it's like, hey, buddy, it's too big now. You branded, <laughs> so you might just move on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I, it, it was, was really a working title because of the fact of that the promo gig that we did was didn't didn't turn out the way it was, and we joke and we joke, and it became an inside joke to us. <laughs> now, did you guys go out and tour right after that first record? Did you do some more records before touring? No, we went right out. We went directly out. Like I, you know, Wine Flow. Uh, I mean, um, Welcome to Our World uh, did did pretty nice for us, you know. But we went directly out on the road. Um, uh, hit hit the Southern Belt, and um, it was it was pretty. You know, it was pretty cool. Who who are some of the acts that you were uh, sharing the uh, bill with back then? Oh, back then it was a lot of guys that started with. Um, Scott, uh, Sun, it, it, it was, it was, it, it seemed like it was a conglomeration of uh, just like group or like ourselves, funk groups like ourselves with, with some barcades, a lot of barcades. I think we just started out that year, if I'm not sure, I believe it was the barcades. And um, going out with the barcades, it was, it was barcades, uh, Sun, Cameo, um, we did so we worked around a lot of a lot of cats like that sort of like here there cool in the game you know like that which we became very good friends with cool is a nice guy how, how did you feel uh well obviously you just mentioned cool but how did you feel getting to actually meet some of the guys that you kind of looked up to like we talked about stacks earlier playing with the barquets you know what was that like when you would actually get to rub elbows with some of those guys well, you know, you, you know, it's so um, the Barcades, before we had met the Barcades, we had saw Stax, the, the movie Stax, um, and they were on it when they were doing this, you know, the Sun of Shaft and all that, and then here we are, we working with them. Um, 
it was it, it, it was it, it's an experience, man. Some things you just can't put a you know a, 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 you just can't put words on it. Uh, from folks that you're admiring, you're looking up to and like saying, "Wow, this is who I want to be." And there you are, you're on the show with them, opening up for them, and uh, it was it was pretty nice. They they were not, they were cool too. They came to the dressing room and um uh and then meeting James Alexander that was really something because you know James goes all the way back to Otis Redding. So it was uh, meeting him was really really like wow. He was he was one of those you know all right happy to meet you sir and to this you know it was respecting like that yeah. And what was the mass production show like at that time? Did you guys? already have sort of, you know, particular look and a particular presentation? Our, our show at that time, especially when you look at it, our, when you think about, okay, the album picture for our first album, which you're speaking, Welcome to Our World, that album picture was, was kind of like all uh, illustrated around uh, our our biggest idols at that time, the Isley Brothers, because the Isley Brothers were influenced on us. And a matter of fact, they were they were instrumental in bringing us into the game. They don't, you know, we would sit down and they're the ones that would give us when we had a chance to one on one talk about, you know, don't do this and don't do that. You know, O'Kelly Isley, you know, so Jersey connection there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> Right over in teenage, right over to the parties, you know? And so they were very instrumental. And um, so with that, we sort of like picked up, hey, you know, we like that. They were doing leather. We like, so let's do leather. Isaacs are doing it. It's not going wrong with them. So how can it go wrong with us? So we've sort of like modeled ourselves on, on those, on the first, on the first two or three albums after those guys, because that's how important they were to us, you know? And especially when you be around them and you look, looking at them and each time year album came by, it was just like, it, it, it just touched us so much. It really like was an impact on us. And that's how our shows, our shows then became like, we, we, we basically uh, also took a model from, I'm going back to marching band, you know, when marching band, you uh, especially down south, down south, they take marching bands very seriously. So during the halftime show, you got to come out wham wham. So we that's that's how we we took that to our stage presence, to our our marching band, you know, days onto our stage on the stage with us, and it, that's how things ended up being sort of like influencing us. So, what did you take from that first record and tour experience? that you brought into your second record, which I think was Believe in 1977? Um, we, uh, you know, the thing about it is the signing with Cotillion Records, uh, it was uh, pretty cool because in fact, they never, they never got in, our, in the way of us and our music. They had always given us free leeway. And you know, you just don't do that with groups because it's about the bottom line. but the one president of Henry Island, uh, he always told us that you guys are musicians. And the thing about it, you're musicians that like to play. And that's how we wrote, we wrote as musicians. So the thing is when we wrote a particular uh, song or something, everybody's song was, uh, was from the heart. 
no one wrote anything at, sort of like to say let's do this for because this is the way that everybody else is doing it they wrote a song because this is what they really felt and they wanted to write so when we went into believe it it was more of the same but we were taking songs that we from that we were working on and we believed in and that's how it went right into believe and that's how it became the title of that album because we were doing what we believed in and um so my albums were were, were um, titled by Lecoy, Lecoy Bryant. He was one that really came off the lighter. He was a he was an album title, and uh, he said, "I really believe in this." And there you go, believe. Yeah, looking at it, um, you wrote the first three tracks on it, uh, including uh, "I Believe in Music," which uh, was a single. Um, so really, it was like the Ricky Show to start that one. Yeah, but you know the. I was like, that goes back to us being compartmentalized. The thing is, I was doing a lot of the writing. And when I finished doing the writing, the guys, mostly like Tyrone and, and, and uh, Drumgold, and, and then they sort of like took it in and said, okay, let's, let's get the rhythm section going. Ty and Lee and all will work out the rhythm section of the song. And then we would start on the vocals. And we've sort of like, that's how we worked in it because of, you know, it was, I was still under this thing of, uh, the Ford assembly line thing, you know, mass production, and and I would I was rolling out songs that on that on that assembly line that to the point where they say, well, Rick has all of those. Let's go with them. This is the time the album we're supposed to be recording. He got the song, so let's from this point on let's make the songs happen. So that's how I ended up. My name ended up on the line. I love the assembly line. <laughs> What, was there any discussion in the group? I mean, there were a lot of those 70s bands, uh, 70s R&B and funk bands, that no matter who wrote it, they would just like put all the names on it. And I'll tell you, all of them I talked to today are sorry that they did that. Um, was there any discussion, you know, whether you guys would do that or just put individuals' names on the, on the writing? Um, no, we never. We never got into any kind of debate or argument or anything like that. Uh, Ricky wrote the song. Ricky, write, uh, let's record the song. Ricky made it happen. Otis wrote the song. Tyrone wrote the song. Let's make it happen. It was nothing like that, never internally uh, within us. That even to this day, uh, with, with, with us as we are now, was sort of like who wrote what? Uh, when did they write it? It was more or less like, okay, you wrote it. Let's make let's get this song going and happen. So it was uh no, never no never that kind of discussion. Well, on this record, especially, you start to really get a feel for mass production strength in falsetto uh, lead vocals and also the, the group harmonies and vocals. I mean, with all the band stuff and the great horns and rhythm and everything, I think that helped set you guys apart was that really strong group vocals. Yeah, um, I, I have to really give credit to um, uh, Otis, uh, I call him Otis, James Rumgo and uh, Larry, Larry Marshall for that because of the fact of that they're the ones that really hammered and hammered the vocals. It, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to rehearse vocals like that, to be honest with you. It was like, you know, it's time to do vocals, Ricky. You know, I said, oh man, I wanted to just play the drums, you know, but we got to do these vocal rehearsals. So, you know, you sit there four or five hours doing vocal rehearsals with 
crazy. But they hammered that in, and and, and it, that's that was the way they uh we more or less like did things, you know. Um, that was their job. That was their, their their part of the package. That's what they were supposed to do, and and they did it. You know, they smacked us around. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and believe it, it was a it was a literal smack around. Let's go. Yeah, that's like part of the uh, the drill team mentality. Yes, it is. You know, because and you're right. You know that that marching band discipline that it played an important part. It really played an important part in our band because everyone in in the group except for Larry and, uh, was uh, in the marching band, except from Larry and Agnes, they were in the choir. So they, but everyone in that group was in the marching band and the jazz band. So they, we all had that discipline of like, rehearsal is essential. Well, some other influences have popped to my mind that we haven't mentioned yet on this one, especially I believe in music, is the Temptations and sort of the Norman Whitfield uh, influence. Did you guys enjoy that as well? Uh, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't sit here and say, you know, because of the fact of that my, my, one of my musical days changed when I heard Cloud Nine. You know, so subliminally, subliminally that's probably what it was there, but when I heard Cloud Nine, it was, it, that became like, what? You know, and, um, that that song in itself and ball of confusion and all those things man they you know going you you know th those songs were very 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 uh instrumental in, in a lot of people lives and yes they made a a great a big influence on me so subliminally you know it's uh, to deny it i would never deny it i'm gonna say hey no i didn't but you know yeah it was there it was there because of the fact that i, I love that music i really did yeah well i mean at the time it was in the air it was in the the DNA of funk and R&B at the time. Yes. Um, other uh, characteristics of this record that kind of continued with their other records was uh, Cosmic Lust was a single and it was instrumental and you guys did a lot of instrumentals. Um, and then also you tended to put an interlude on every record. So what was the thinking with the interludes and the instrumentals? The interludes was something that uh, Tyrone, Drumgo, and Rod and Rodney Felsen, they love doing those interludes. Um, <clears throat> that's to go with the instrumentals, right? Because of the fact that we were we were musicians that musicians, I'm sorry, that love to play. So the instrumentals became like uh they they were just a part of us because of the fact, going back to that band, you know, the jazz band. We were in the jazz band. And uh we love to uh like just jam and gig and so when we did the instrumentals and the uh, interludes, it was just, I don't know, maybe it was too much beer, I can tell you, but they like, they, we, uh, we always did those interludes uh, for the sort of like fillers, transitional. They were transitions from one thing that we were going to the next. And uh, that's, that's where they came from. Well, I'm thinking with the instrumentals, maybe you were like, hey, we've done enough work on those vocals. We're doing an instrumental here. <laughs> hey, look! I love the women did instrumental. That was me one day, one session. I did not have to sing, you know. I really did. So that was great. Yeah. 